0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was just over five years ago that there was a Salafi jihadist group that began calling itself the Islamic State, claiming political and military power over all Muslims across the world. They established this so called caliphate in Iraq after capturing several key cities, including Mosul which was the second largest city in Iraq. This group attempted to erase history completely as they destroyed churches, mosques, and museums. And what they didn't destroy, they used as weapons depots or shooting ranges. And it's estimated that about 500,000 people fled Mosul as a result of this conflict. If you think about that number, that is almost the size of Baltimore, The city of Baltimore has about 600,000 people. So imagine a town or city the size of Baltimore, men, women, and children leaving their homes and all they know in the wake of conflict. The Islamic State still has sleeper cells throughout Syria and throughout Iraq, but they only hold a fraction of the land that they once did. The Iraqi army recaptured Mosul in July of 2017 and it's only now that the buildings and institutions that were there are being rebuilt for the revitalizing of Iraqi's civilization. And outside of Mosul there's a small city that's called Karakosh or Bagdidi and it has a church, this church that you see behind me that's called the Church of Mar Benham and Mart Sarah. It's actually not an old church, but it is the house of worship for an ancient faith with ancient rituals done by Christians who have inhabited that region since the 11th century. So basically for the last thousand years, that town was Syrian Orthodox. And then in about the 1700s, it came under the Roman papacy and it became an Eastern rite of the Catholic church. And it had remained a Syrian Catholic town ever since the 1700s. But in 2014, just five years ago, This community was forced out at the threat of violence from the Islamic State, and this church was destroyed. One of the priests of that church said in an interview We started the reconstruction project even before the liberation of the city, out in the Nineveh Plains, when we were refugees. We've worked to rebuild houses and communities as believers because this is the sense of belonging both to a parish and to a community. And about 26,000 people have now returned to Baghdadi, which is only about half of the city, but the community is building. On Thursday, August 15th, about a week and a half ago, it was the Catholic Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the church was rededicated. And Christians from all around Mosul came to celebrate the city is now navigating its rebuilding process and it has a number of decisions that need to be made, such as what civil services does the city need to function at a very basic level? What do we prioritize in thinking about the city's infrastructure? Who's taking ownership over the different parts of the rebuilding process? And in the midst of this, Christians are thinking through what role the church plays in all of these efforts. Similar questions that are being asked there are being asked in the book of Haggai that you heard read earlier. Very masterfully, I might add, by Weber. Haggai had been prophesying around the year 520 BCE. It was about 500 years before the time of Jesus. The Babylonians had come in a few generations earlier and had conquered most of Mesopotamia, including the southern kingdom of Judah. And the easiest way to govern conquered enemies for Babylon was to take most of the population and bring them into Babylonian epicenters of empirical power. And so we hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah where he says, God is taking off his signet ring and he's casting it out into exile as a reference to the defeated King Jehoiakim of Judah. But a few generations later, the Persians come and they conquer the Babylonian empire. And after Cyrus and Cambyses conquer, King Darius then begins to reorganize the empire into taxable nations. The Persians had a different system of governance. They sent people back to where they came from, back to their homeland, so that each people and city and king were now ruling autonomously, but they were doing so within the framework of Persian imperialism. The king's desire to respect Judah's local sanctuary goes really hand in hand with the overseeing of Judah's material resources. But that type of governance works well for Judah here because they're allowed to go back and they're given permission to rebuild their temple. And this little two-chapter book, you could read it in like an, half an hour. It's a short book. This little book of Haggai, His prophecies only stretch over the course of about four months, from the end of August until about mid-December, and he calls the people back to rebuilding the temple. There's one commentator named Elizabeth Actemeyer, and she nails the obscurity of this book for most people. She says, "We, we don't know what to do with Haggai in the canon. He crops up in the midst of the goodly fellowship of the prophets like a misguided stranger from the wrong part of town. No cry for social justice escapes his lips. No assurance that God dwells with the humble and contrite. Instead, he reeks of something that smells very much like the external and superficial religion of which we would all like to be rid. The result is that the church has used Haggai 2 verses 1 through 9 for a lesson at the dedication of a church building. But otherwise, the Book of Common Prayer relegates Haggai to just a few services of evening prayer during the week, and many lectionaries ignore the book altogether. So why do a series on it? (laughs) As a church plant, we are constantly building. It's who we are by very definition of of being a church plant. Um, There are ways to build, which are careless or even harmful, and there are ways to build well. There are pressures all around us that might try and discourage us as individuals to stop the work of building. But this book examines several of those reasons that we're tempted to give up, and it calls us to build well as we focus on people's hearts rather than on stones. The people in the book of Haggai, they've just become content in survival, But Haggai is going to remind them that the status of their failed crops reflects the condition of their temple, their worship, and ultimately their hearts. People walk past it every day, this temple, and they ignore it. They just set their priorities on everything else except building the temple. But God's desire has been, is, and always will be to dwell in his full glory among his people And they're called to build the thing that will form them into a dwelling place for God's glory. And so just like Judah, we're called to build both institutionally and personally what will form us into a dwelling place for God's glorious presence. Like Judah, in this chapter, we need to put away the excuses that keep us from building. And then we need to start building with just small acts of faith. And then we can take comfort in God's presence as the very work itself is just beginning. What are the excuses that keep us from building? Judah's first step was a logical one. We need places to live. They build houses. But they would be deceived if they thought that that was the end. To have houses built doesn't actually satisfy the deepest longings of their hearts. And it doesn't actually form the culture around them in any meaningful way. It doesn't produce the kind of place that God takes desire in dwelling in. So Haggai tells them, consider your ways. Which you could also translate this as a question in English. So, yeah, how's that going for you? (laughs) It's pretty clear. The answer is that things are not going great. The crop's and the temple, we're both in the same state of devastation. So the exhortation reminds us to think carefully about what we're building and how we do it. The structures that we build are going to form us for years to come. To build well is to create a people and a place where God's mercy and his love and his forgiveness are learned and that they're lived out. The church is the household to which new members are added, where people grow in grace, partake of Christ in the sacrament, where they're baptized, where they're joined in holy matrimony, where they turn in sickness or in time of need, and where at the end they're committed to the Heavenly Father's good hands. And it's that institution that forms us into this dwelling place for God's presence. So to merely survive then is just to make it through the days and the months and the years without training ourselves to seek God's kingdom. It's to move with the whims or the injustices or the greedy appetites of a consumer culture. It's unreflective. It's bound up in resentments, and it ultimately leaves us unsatisfied. So we should often stop during the day and ask ourselves this question. Okay, so how's that going for you? Every time anger or resentment or hatred or lust or envy starts welling up in our hearts, we can stop and we can ask this question again and again and again. How is it going for you? In this moment, what am I believing to be true about the God who created me, who loves me and wants to be with me in his presence? God tells the people to go up to the hills and to start fetching wood. And I think that like Judah, it can be easy for us to miss the cosmic significance of our seemingly meager moments of obedience. If you want to see a temple built, then you need to just take the first step and go up to the hills and get some wood. There's a story that I read about this week that kind of reminded me a little bit of this. There was a woman who was disturbed by the things that her young boy was saying. He was a teenager, and she knew that she wanted to see her son grow up to love all people. That's a good desire for a mother. And her teenage son was making jokes and the jokes sounded racist. So she feared that he was taking information in uncritically from white nationalist sources that were online. So the woman encourages parents in this article that I read to intervene in situations like that because she's afraid that children may not examine arguments critically that they're reading or hearing online. She says, I always start with, I know that you never want to hurt anyone, so I want to explain to you why that joke isn't appropriate and why it's hurtful. That way, you'll know why we don't ever want to say that again. This mother is very intentional, and I appreciate that. She's very intentional about what she does and does not want to see being built in her son. And so she's taking these small steps in the building process. And as a church, we agree with this woman that white nationalism and all racism are evil. And to go even further, that they're antithetical to the gospel of Christ and the purpose of God's kingdom. And I appreciate this woman's intentionality in naming what's evil and then being proactive in making changes. So with the horrors of, in our recent memory, Dayton and El Paso and other mass shootings in the US, people are starting to ask, what kind of algorithms are being used to target certain young white males with this disturbing false teaching? The lies of white nationalism, which were formed in wickedness and spread through these dark coverings of secret algorithms are now starting to be brought to light. And those are small steps towards exposing error and building something better. Are we as a church taking small steps of faith to confront these or other similar issues in order to build the church that we want to then form us? I've been grateful for the ways over the last few months that we've been able to provide dinners for the Restoration Immigration Legal Aid Clinics It's a great opportunity for us to build a church which seeks to love our neighbors well, regardless of how they got here or where they're from. It's a way for us to grow in what it means to welcome all of our neighbors with the love of Christ. It's a small act of faith, and it pushes back against certain unjust systems of racism, oppression, and even violence. It's a small act of faith that builds the kind of institution that we want to form us. So going up to the hills and bringing wood for Judah was a declaration that the years of abandonment are done, that they have returned home and that the God of heaven delights in dwelling among his people. And it was true for Judah and may it be true for us. May our acts of faith declare that we are free in Christ and that we are being formed into a temple for God's glory and his mercy To be shown to the world. Finally, when Judah begins to build, God reminds them of his promise. He says, I am with you. It's a promise that goes all the way back uh, to the, the Exodus. God is with them as much at the beginning of the labor as he is at the end of their labor, because he cares more for hearts than for stones. One commentator says this, God yearns to return to this people and to dwell in their midst. The temple is symbolic of that dwelling and it will be the sign and the seal of their renewed heart's devotion. The evidence that they have finally come to terms with reality. If we prioritize building the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is comprised of our lives and the life of the church, then everything else can be fit within that reality. If we don't prioritize that at all, then we're left toiling in darkness without the light of God's promises and his mercy to guide us. It would be helpful for us then to take time each week and reflect just a little bit about what we want to build. It's a progressive work that... If you feel like you've been working on something foundational with God, you can ask, okay, so what support structures need to go up next, Lord? And then if you ask our question again, which is, okay, so how's that going for you? And the answer is, well, it's not that great. Then you can pray and ask God, okay, so what needs to change next? What needs to be altered in my life right now? what do you want your life with God to look like in the next days or weeks in order to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the months and the years to come? Answering those kinds of questions is going to guide us in saying yes to what's helpful and no to what's unhelpful in this building process. So the church of Mar Benham and Mart Sarah in Baghdidi is being rebuilt, not just as painted stones or a building, but it's being built, as one of the priests there says, as a faith around Christ who is celebrated in the resurrection. This community is building the kind of city that's going to form and fashion hundreds of families into followers of Jesus in the years to come. And as we think through our lives and in, as we think about the life of incarnation, let's start to take the small acts of faith that are necessary to build that which is going to form us into a dwelling place for God's glory. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears and our hearts that we may grow closer to you through joy and through suffering Be with us in the fullness of your power as new members are added to God's household. As we grow in grace through the years, when we are joined in holy matrimony, when we turn to you in sickness or special need, and at the last, when we are committed into the Father's hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.